First of all, I just want to share with you a huge blessing that happened this morning. Um, we had our normal prayer group for prayer, and uh, my three of my children volunteered to join us, and they prayed. They, they joined us in prayer, and I just want to tell you what an encouragement that is. Uh, our, our praying before the service, I think, is so important uh, that we're saying, God, we need you for everything, but to have three of my children join us was just added encouragement this morning. And one more thing, I am going to be um, flying out to Illinois to see my grandmother, who's not doing great health-wise, um, from Monday through Friday, and, um, but you can still call me, or you can call Dave, but I just won't be in the office, just so you know. But for a lot of you, that really didn't make a difference anyway. <laughs> but please pray for me, I guess that's part of the thing. Please pray for me, pray for my grandma, she loves the Lord, and we love her, and uh, just pray that we, I can be an encouragement to her, and uh, that God strengthens her. So, all right, please turn to John. We're in chapter 4. Oh yes, and I was very encouraged by our business meeting this week as well. I think God would, was pleased with it. It was honoring to him. John chapter 4. One of the great concerns we all should have in this life is how do I relate to God? Is there any greater concern than this? How can I relate to the living God? That should be top priority in our concerns in life. And the reason we should be so concerned about this is because we have ruined our relationship with God. And what it means to have a ruined relationship with God means that we are separated from Him. And that is the greatest problem we could ever have, isn't it? Separated from the favor of God because we have ruined our relationship with Him. And think about this. Because we want to really understand what it means that we are separated from God. God is the sum of all perfections. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly loving. Everything about him is perfect, excellent, greater than everything else. But we have turned from him. We have rebelled against him. We have gone our own way. And so you might say that God gave us what we asked for, didn't he? And every day we feel the reality of this, don't we? Don't, don't you feel it? It's like we're living in a stinky morgue. right? Maybe that's just one way to describe it. <laughs> but I think it's true. It's just smelly and dead and, 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 and falling apart. And don't we feel it? Don't we see it every day? We look around us. We see it inside of us. We see it around us. The whole world is dying. And it stinks. Now, this is not to say that God has not given us many good things, right? He has blessed us in so many ways. And in fact, every good thing we have is the grace of God, isn't it? We would have not one good thing if it wasn't for God's amazing, amazing grace. But yet one day, one day, and we know the world is kind of counting down to 
towards that day, right? All of our lives are kind of on a countdown towards that day. One day, even the good things will be removed from us. And all we will experience for eternity is the judgment of God that we deserve without any good thing at all. Would you characterize this as a situation that's a problem? Now, what is utterly amazing, and in light of what we've just looked at, think about this, what is utterly amazing is that God has provided a way so that we can be reconciled to Him. In other words, that we can have a restored relationship with God. By the way, to have a restored relationship with God is salvation. That's what it means to be saved, to be made right with God. And that way is through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I want to emphasize that. Salvation is based on the person, that's the God-man, right? (laughs) Jesus Christ, the person Only he could do it, and his work, and that's the atoning sacrifice that he accomplished on the cross, through which he dealt with our sin, paid for it on the cross. And what connects us to all the saving blessings, what connects us to every good thing is what? It's it's faith. Faith is the means that God has determined through which we are connected to all the blessings of God. And so I want you to see the importance of faith, but I want to remind you that faith itself does not save. There's nothing about faith itself that can save you. There's nothing powerful about faith itself. It connects us to the one who saves, right? And I I, I say that all the time when I talk about faith because I don't want you to mistake that. I want you to be clear on that, that Jesus saves through faith. It's important we get that straight. So this is why we read, without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11, verse 6. This is why we read, what, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14, verse 23. And so you might wonder, why has God chosen to save through faith? And we just don't have enough time to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just give you a, a quick Um, explanation. You see, because faith is the path of salvation that most honors and exalts God. All right? It magnifies the object that saves and minimizes the object that is being saved. Faith makes the one who is saving look great. It is all about him and his work. And faith makes the one being saved look most needy, (laughs) right? Which is exactly true. In other words, faith says the truth about God, right? Faith speaks the truth about God and us, our need for him. And so I just want you to marvel for a second at the way God saves. What a marvelous way God saves. There is no greater way he possibly could have saved us Nothing that speaks the truth about God in us more clearly than that he saves by faith. It's amazing. And we need to stop every once in a while and just praise God when we think about his greatness. So we will learn more about this faith today in the passage we're looking at. We will be warned by looking at what saving faith does not look like in verses 43 through 45. 
We'll be taught by looking at what saving faith does look like in verses 46 through 54. And then we'll be encouraged to continue to live by faith by looking at the object of our faith in verses 50 through 54. If we have time for all of that, we'll see. So we begin with either a contradiction in Scripture. You might say, oh no, a contradiction. Or an example of faith that looks really authentic, but is not real at all, in order to warn us. And I'm going to give you a little hint. The latter is the one, (laughs) is the true one that's really going on in this passage. Here is an example of faith that looks really good, but is not authentic faith that we're going to see today. So as we begin to look at this section, I want us to keep in mind uh, where Jesus has just come from. If you remember from last week, Jesus has just visited the Samaritans. If you remember, we've seen this amazing, um, amazing conversion of the Samaritans. We, We just saw a great picture of genuine saving faith when they came to Jesus, the Messiah. And so the story was an example of what faith looked like, right? Remember, they heard about Jesus from the Samaritan woman. And they saw the transforming effect of Jesus on the Samaritan woman's life. They saw God at work within her. And then they said, we need to see this Jesus ourselves. So they went to Jesus and they spent two days with him. And their response was this. They didn't see any miracles as far as we know. They just heard from Jesus. And their response was this. Um, We have come to believe that he is the savior of the world. Meaning that he is the savior not only of the Jews and not only of the Gentiles, but also of the Samaritans who are in between there somewhere, right? He's the savior. Uh, You can't find a savior anywhere else, right? And this was indicative that they had real, genuine, saving faith. So the Samaritans rather than the Jews becomes the model of what saving faith looks like. And isn't that just a twist, Isn't that a surprising turn of events here? That the Samaritans become the true people of God. Now as Jesus now moves to his hometown, I want you to see the type of faith they express in Jesus in comparison to the type of faith that the Samaritans expressed in Jesus. And they both outwardly will appear to receive Jesus. But the nature of their faith is entirely different. And so, this should remind us that the outward appearance is not always indicative of what is really going on inwardly. All right? So now Jesus goes home to Galilee, and as he does, we are alerted to a statement that he previously made about how a prophet is received in their hometown. And that statement is supposed to prepare us to understand the kind of reception that Jesus receives when he arrives home. Right in verse 43. I'm going to read this because I think it's important to hear these words. After the two days he departed for Galilee, the two days he was in with the Samaritans, and then this parenthesis here, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now John would not insert something like that without a purpose, right? He inserts that in there. The, the author of this book, he inserts it in there so that we would understand the reception that he receives. So what does Jesus mean when he says that a prophet is not honored in his hometown? Well, you could look at it as something like this. 
that familiarity breeds contempt. Now, I had to look up what contempt means, or actually, I had to look up synonym, synonym, synonym. I don't even know how to say. You know what I mean, right? <laughs> Words that are similar. <laughs> oh, man. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he, when he uses people like me? <laughs> but anyway, disrespect is another word like that, right? Um, there's something that is hard about honoring, that is difficult about honoring someone who has come from your own hometown, right? There's something that's difficult when you grew up with someone, honoring them when they should be honored. Let me give you an example. How would you act towards a good friend who grew up with you, who hung out with you all the time, and who happened to become the president of the United States? Do you think it would be hard to honor him as the president of the United States and to see him that way? I think it would be. And here, for example, there's a tendency to think of Jesus as you might call him a homeboy, right? <laughs> Rather than as the Lord and Savior. If this is the case, then how would you expect Jesus to be received when he arrives home? Maybe not very well, kind of cold, not visibly very honoring, not like the Samaritans at least, kind of the opposite you might say. But notice when Jesus arrives at his hometown, surprisingly, what we see is that he is welcomed. He is welcomed. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So some people think this is a contradiction, that Jesus was proven wrong, and many scholars think that. They say he is surprised at the welcome he receives when he arrives home, where he had just said that a prophet is not honored at home, while well, here he is received and welcomed. Is Jesus thinking, well, I got that one wrong. <laughs> that surprised me. And I think apparent difficulties like this are good for us. They make us think. And I think it's good for us to think. And I think thinking through these passages, I think the answer is absolutely clear in this passage. I don't think it's difficult at all. And I don't think it takes a scholar to come up with what's really going on here. But I think passages that appear to be difficult are so good for the church because they make us think, and we need to learn to think better. We can't just read past passages like this. We need to understand, what is it saying? What's it trying to say to us? And good questions make us good thinkers and help us to understand the Bible better. So this brings us to another possibility. Could the welcoming of Jesus here be intended to give us an example of the type of faith that does not honor Jesus? Could this be faith that looks good on the outside, but is not real, genuine faith on the inside? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. That's exactly what's going on. And if you look at the text, I think it is very plain here that this is the answer. And there are a number of clues here. This is no contradiction, and it doesn't require a scholar to figure this out, <laughs> unless you're already bent on thinking that this is a contradiction. <laughs> there is something about this welcoming of Jesus that does not honor God, and, and their problem of faith has nothing to do with experiencing miracles. These people have experienced miracles. They have. They've seen them. They believe that Jesus does miracles. 
right? They saw it right before their eyes. And they are excited about him. There is absolutely no doubt these people are excited about Jesus. And they welcome him. And this should be very concerning to us. It should be very concerning to us that you can welcome Jesus, receive him, and not be honoring to him. <laughs> so we need to understand what is behind this. What is behind their welcoming of Jesus that doesn't honor him? And so we need to get at, at the bottom of this. And so we're going to look for clues that the author gives that help us understand the type of faith they had in the context. The first clue to help us understand the type of faith they had is from verse 45. We read and listen to the words here. They welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So what is the reason for welcoming him? The explanation here is that they had seen the miracles that Jesus had done at the feast. In chapter 2, they had seen all the miracles Jesus had done. They had experienced them. And so in some ways, the miracles they had seen motivated them to welcome him with such excitement. These miracles are the reason they wanted Jesus to be around them. They were impressed by his signs and wonders. They loved his twirly doodads, right? Twirly doodads, his exciting things he did. The explosions, the fireworks, the miracles. But there's another additional reason why they responded with such excitement. It was not just the miracles, but you have the statement in verse 44 that helps us understand more fully why they welcomed him so much. We read, as we've already mentioned, that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So the excitement they have is not just in the fact that they had seen miracles, but that they felt they had a special attachment to Jesus because he is from their hometown. They were excited about the miracle worker, but they thought they had something that he owed to them because he was one of them. They were connected to the wonder kid. Here's our friend. We know him. We're entitled to special privileges because of our connection to him. No wonder they were so eager to welcome him. They had seen the miracles. They knew what he could do. And he was from their hometown. <laughs> this means our motivation behind welcoming Jesus is not merely he can do great things, but he owes them something. He should do something great for them. How excited they should have been, <laughs> you can imagine that the miracle worker was back where he belonged. Now, if you go back to my illustration of growing up with someone who became president, now, let's add to that and imagine that you would expect something from him, wouldn't you? If you grew up with him, if you were friends with him, and he became president, you would think, I have special privileges. This guy owes me something. I can get in, right? That's kind of what happens, actually. But you would think that they owe you something, right? And they should put you in special offices and special places. And, uh, and, and there's this connection you have with them. Or, or think of it another way. Why do you love getting pictures with famous people? Why do you love to take a picture of you and someone famous? Well, partly because it makes you look pretty good, right? It makes you look good. You're with this guy, and he's famous. It kind of builds your ego, 
It makes you look like someone special. So this means that the motivation behind Jesus' welcoming is really about me and about my ego. They're interested in him because of what he can do for them and because he makes them look great. And this means you can welcome Jesus warmly and yet not honor him at all, as is the case here. This is the kind of welcoming that Jesus does not honor and he's not after. So be warned, that is possible. There's one last clue that helps us confirm what type of faith they were expressing in their welcoming of Jesus. This confirmation is found in verse 48 where Jesus makes a general statement about the Galileans. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, these words are actually mentioned to the officer that we're going to look at whose son needed to be healed, right? And it's a rebuke from Jesus about those who are sign seekers, <laughs> right? And so he, Jesus is rebuking those who seek signs, and that's the substance and the total of their faith, right? That's all they have for their faith. And that's not a faith that honors God, as we already mentioned. But I want us to notice something about the language here that is not evident in our translations, all right? Um, this is uh, one of the few areas where, where you need to see the Greek to understand what it's saying exactly. Uh, the you in Greek is clear whether it's plural or singular, right? And so when you go to the Greek and you look at the statement that Jesus makes to this officer, you will notice in Greek that it's plural, the you is plural. So he's not just speaking to this officer, guys, if he was seeking miracles as the foundation of his faith, but he's speaking to all the Galileans in the area. He's making a general statement, all right, to all the Galileans. And the point is that the people of Galilee were in love with miracles, but not with Jesus. They were not interested in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. They were rather interested in a miracle worker, one man said this, they were consumers, not worshipers. They were admirers and not followers. So what, what is clear in this reception of Jesus, as impressive as it might have been outwardly, was that it was not accompanied by the faith that saves and that honors God. <clears throat> so we can make a few conclusions here quickly about the type of faith that does not honor God. The type of faith that does not honor God is a faith that is most interested with Jesus' miracles what he can do for me rather than with Jesus himself. How can he fix my problem, problems? How can he provide for me? How can he take care of me? How can he make my life more comfortable? It is not interested in Jesus himself. It's not amazed at his glory. It's blind to the value of Jesus Christ, the infinite worth and glory and magnificence of Jesus Christ. It does not see. In addition, the type of faith that does not honor God is a faith that's convinced Jesus owes them something in this life. In other words, it's a faith that fails to understand grace at all. They believe they have a special connection with Jesus. He is my homeboy, as I said already. Because of their connection with Jesus, they believe he owes them something. He owes them signs, wonders, health, comfort, healing, stability. And you could get this from anywhere. You can think he owes you something from anywhere, your, your birth order, <laughs> the work you've done, whatever reason you think he owes you something. But it does not understand grace, that everything we have is undeserved grace from God himself. 
So what happens to this type of faith? Well, Jesus said the trials and temptations of other things will come in and eventually will reveal it for what it is, as fake. It does not endure the test of time. Jesus explained what happens in, to people who have this type of faith in the parable of the sower from Matthew 13, 18 to 23. And he says that eventually difficulties, trials, and tribulations come in their way. That's a difficult roadblock to get through, isn't it? Or, 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 or the, the temptations of other better-looking things come their way, and so they turn away. This eventually reveals that such faith is not genuine saving faith. They do not persevere, and they do not bear fruit. We have seen this type of faith already in chapter 2, verse 23 through 24. Let me read this, and, and just bring your mind back to chapter 2 here, and you'll see that this is the exact same thing, and these are the exact same people that Jesus is saying this about. Fascinating. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Notice, they believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, in his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In other words, that literally reads, Jesus did not believe in them. <laughs> Jesus did not believe in the faith they had. That's what that means. And, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Their faith was a faith that Jesus did not believe in. So there is a faith that looks really good, that welcomes Jesus, but is not saving faith. Jesus' brothers will exhibit this faith in the miracle, in, in, in requesting miracles of Jesus in John 7, verse 3. Uh, just to give you an example of this. The disciples say, if you are, uh, the disciples, Jesus' brothers in John 7, verse 3, will go to Jesus and say, if you are the Christ, then show yourself to everybody. They knew that Jesus was doing miracles. They believed he could. But they said, then show yourself. What's wrong with you? <laughs> show yourself to the world, and then everyone will believe. But that's not the type of faith Jesus was after. That would not accomplish what he was pursuing. They were thinking in worldly terms. Can you have the same type of faith that does not honor God, even if you did not grow up in Jesus' hometown, or experience firsthand his miracles? And the answer is yes. You can be interested and involved in Christianity just because of what it means to you, what it means to me. Maybe that teaching helps me live a little better. It helps me have a better life. Maybe it brings health to me physically. Maybe a little social gathering is a little helpful for me. But we can fail to be amazed at Jesus, fail to see his glory, fail to see our need for his grace. We can love our church and spiritual leaders for the wrong reasons because they fix our problems and make us look good. And it's all about us, isn't it? Rather than loving them because they lead us to Christ. Right? We should love them because they lead us to Christ himself. Now there's nothing wrong with having our favorite preacher or having our favorite speaker or author or church that we love. But it can be wrong if we are connected to them for the wrong reasons. And so we need to check our hearts and make sure we are right. An example of this is a friend I had from high school. And he ex sort of exhibited the same type of faith. It had been a couple years after high school and we were in college. And uh, 
he was going through a particularly rough time in life. Just everything was falling apart. Nothing was working. And so he called me and said he was interested in Christianity, right? And so I remember a little bit about it. I'm sure I gave him the gospel. I don't remember exactly what I said. But I remember warning him and saying, you know, I am just concerned that you are pursuing Christ because things are going bad in your life and that when things turn good in your life, you're going to abandon him. And, and I, I'm just concerned about you and that you, th- that you really are turning to Christ. And I didn't say those exact words, but something like that. And uh, just a, a little short time afterwards, and since then, he completely abandoned Christ. He had no interest in him when things did get better in his life. And I think that's an example of this type of faith. It's the Jesus who is there when I need him, but not a Jesus we love. This means, be warned, church, there's a welcoming of Jesus, a faith that looks really good outwardly but does not honor him. That is not the real thing. So after an example of faith that is not genuine, we come to an example of real genuine faith to instruct us in verses 46 through 54. Now, before we look at this, we're going to give a quick review of the story. So Jesus arrived in Cana in Galilee, which should be familiar to us, right? This is the place we had turned water into wine in chapter 2. And we're told that an official comes to him from Capernaum, 20 miles away, who has a great need. His son is dying. And we learn later, um, after verse 46, that he is near death. So this is a serious situation. And what can we know about this official? Well, he's from the royal court. He works for the king, which the only king figure in the area would be Herod Antipas. And so he had some clout. He had some significance. He had a good position. And we know Herod Antipas was an evil man. He's the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. And for all these reasons, these people would not have been really liked. They were not in the most favor. So what does the official do in his great crisis? He travels 20 miles around and comes to Jesus because he wants his son to be healed. And so why might he have come to Jesus? Well, that's a good question. We don't know the answer exactly to that. But you would imagine that he had tried everything he could out. Everything he could. I'm sure he had all the resources in the world, but didn't work. And so he must have heard about Jesus. A limited knowledge, but he heard about Jesus. Maybe even had seen some of his miracles back then. We don't know. But he sees Jesus as his only hope, and so he goes to him. Where else would he do? (laughs) What else would you do in such a situation? So Jesus responds to the official's request in a very strange, in most uncompassionate-sounding way you could ever imagine (laughs) with these words. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Imagine that. (laughs) What is Jesus doing? It sounds like he has absolutely no compassion on this man. Um, When he's asked to heal his son, he just says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So what in the world is he doing? And we'll look at that in a little bit. But this man is determined He won't be dissuaded from his purpose. Despite the rebuke from Jesus, he continues to plead for Jesus to come before his child dies. He is desperately in need, and he knows that Jesus is his only hope, and so he is not going to be turned away. He pushes forward. And so Jesus responds with these most amazing and surprising words. He says, I don't need to go to your house. Your son will live. I will heal him. You can go home. Your son will live. And so how does he respond? (laughs) 
He believes. He believes the word of Jesus. And he goes home. Kind of like the Samaritans, right? He doesn't see any visible sign. He doesn't need any visible signs to confirm anything. He just believes his word. And he goes home. Very similar to the Samaritans' response. And on his way, he finds out that at the very hour when Jesus said he would be healed is the very hour when he was healed. And so his faith is confirmed even more and strengthened. And then we find out that not only is he healed, his son healed, but he believes himself and is healed spiritually. And his whole family is healed. What an incredible event. Incredible outcome to the story. But our concern is with how does the official's action show us what authentic faith looks like? So first, saving faith recognizes that I have needs that can't be fixed by anything in this world. And that's exactly what this official comes to. He might have had all the resources, resources in the world, but he comes to a point where nothing can help him. He's helpless. Nothing can fix his problems. What providence of God that brought him to this situation? <laughs> the reality is every one of us is going to face the same need. Every one of us is going to come to a point where there's nothing that can help us, where we face our helplessness head on. We're all going to die, right? <laughs> We're going to come to the point where we recognize our neediness. And many of us see these times as enemies that stand in our way. And that's understandable, isn't it? But few of us realize that it is the grace of God that brings us to a point where we can't escape our neediness. None of us like these times. They are truly awful, let's be honest. But they're actually God's grace. Without it, we would never realize, realize we need God. We would never turn to God. We would never pursue Him for grace. There's no greater place for us to see God's grace than when we are crushed. It's from that position that we look up to God and say, God, I need you more than anything. So saving faith recognizes Jesus as the answer to my need and goes to him for deliverance. Now, this man's knowledge was limited, but he goes to Jesus, doesn't he? He believed that Jesus could help him, and so he goes to him in his need. And this is simply what faith does. Faith cries out to Jesus as our only hope. Uh, he knows one thing, and faith knows one thing, that Jesus is my only hope and my only answer. That's what faith looks like. And unless you get here, you have not even begun to enter the doorway of faith. Unless you get to this place, you haven't even entered the door. You have no idea what faith is. Praise God for the awful trial that fell upon him. It brought him to Jesus. Praise God. It brings him to a point where he knows that Jesus is what he needs. This is the best thing that could have happened to him. And isn't that true of you, believer? Believers need reminders that Christ is all I need, not only to bring us to the faith, but also throughout our lives to remind us that Jesus is what we need. And praise God for the wonderful redeeming result of the awful trials that we face in our lives. But that's not it. Real faith passes the test, and get this, by persisting in believing God's word despite the obstacles that are put in our way. Even obstacles that are sometimes put in our way by Jesus himself that we see in this passage. You can see for yourself here that Jesus puts an obstacle in the path of this man's to test his faith. And Jesus administers this test when he responds to the official's cry for help with a very unsympathetic sounding rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus seems to be making it more difficult for this man rather than easier for him to come to the faith. What is going on here? 
Well, he's testing him. How is this man going to respond? Is he going to give up? Well, that's the test, isn't it? And the answer is no, he passes the test. We know this because he continues to beg Jesus to heal his son after he is rebuked for needing signs. He passes the test. And Jesus continues to administer the test to the official in response to his request for healing with these words, go, your son will live. So he's continuing to test him. In other words, I'm not going to your house to perform a spectacular miracle for you. I'm not going to do this miracle as a spectacle to be seen. You're going to have to believe my words, right? And how is he going to respond? That's the test. And he passes the test, doesn't he? And we know this because of the official's response in verse 51. He says, or we read, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That means he passed the test. He believed the words of Jesus. That is what is required to pass the test. We must believe the words that Jesus says. Faith takes Jesus at his word and goes through the obstacles that are put in our path. That's what genuine faith looks like. Now, this is not an isolated event where Jesus tests someone. Jesus did the same thing to, his, uh, to uh, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Remember, a Gentile woman comes to Jesus asking for the healing of her daughter who's demon-possessed. And at first, Jesus actually ignores her. That's what it says. Jesus actually ignores her. He doesn't listen to her cries. And then he tells her no, <laughs> basically. He says this, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus doesn't just say no, he compares her to a dog. You know, Jesus would have been canceled in our culture, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? That's, that's him canceled right there from what he said. But she persists. She wins the day by making this argument in response. Listen to these words. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. <laughs> she passes the test, doesn't she? She is willing to be a dog in the story of redemption if it means she can have even a crumb from her master's table. She says, make me a dog if I can have even a crumb. I'm okay with that. With that, Jesus says to her, you have passed the test. Jesus says these words, O woman, great is your faith. And she passes the test unlike the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler failed to pass the test, didn't he? So what is Jesus doing by putting these people's faith to the test? He is working to bring out the genuine reality of the faith that's already in them. He is, he is revealing, bringing to the surface what genuine faith would look like by their response. And so what would it look like for anybody to pass the test? Well, genuine faith presses through the barriers to get at Jesus. When obstacles such as persecution or temptation of better things come their way, they will press on believing God's word. It will not be put off. Nothing can stand in their way. Real faith is willing to be humbled, even embarrassed to any degree for the sake of having Jesus. And the question is, why is that? Because genuine, now this is so obvious, I don't even need to mention it. Because genuine faith believes Jesus is who he claims to be. It's that simple. Genuine faith believes I need Jesus more than anything. Why? Because it sees the reality of who Jesus is as the most glorious, most excellent, most magnificent being in the entire universe. And that's what faith is, right? 
is growing to understand that more and more. Therefore, it presses in to him until he blesses us. That is faith. And the psalmist is a great example of it. We might get annoyed by the psalmist sometimes. We're like, well, he's just gone through this. He's crying. He's happy. He's crying. He's happy. And it's all about God. And, and just, just, why doesn't he have a little bit of faith? Well, that is faith. <laughs> that is what faith looks like. Faith presses into Jesus. Oh, that we would have more of that. Oh, that we would have more of that. That's not bad. <laughs> That's what faith looks like. Or Jesus said this in Matthew 11, verse 12. And this is how the kingdom of God works. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Um, our faith is validated and vindicated by the violence at which we lay hold of Jesus, right? That's what it's saying. In the story of the unjust judge of Luke 18, 1 through 8, the woman displays the same kind of faith by her persistent crying out to Jesus. If she stopped crying out to Jesus, it would just show she didn't have real faith, right? But she persistently cries out to him. What Jesus is doing here is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 6 through 7, that God does through the trials. They're designed to bring out the genuineness of your faith. And notice, what this says happens through the trials is exactly what Jesus does in this passage. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't this exactly what's going on in what Jesus is bringing out? So here's an example of what real genuine faith looks like. Do you have this faith, even a little? Even if you're holding on by a thread, is this the type of faith you have? Now you will struggle, and sometimes you'll feel like you're lost, and it's not even there. But genuine, true faith presses on. And at the end of the day, you must have Jesus, because in him is everything. Is this your faith? Genuine faith will su settle for nothing less than Jesus. And this is the reason why we do what we do here. There is a reason why the foundation is the word of God. Donald Gray Br Barnhouse wrote these words. We have spoken of churches that are famed for faith in our day. The reason in every case is that they are centered on the word of God. The Lord has promised to bless his word. If we cleave to the word, there must be blessing. <laughs> nothing glorifies God more greatly than when we believe his word, and nothing builds faith like the word of God ministered faithfully. Finally, the worthiness of Jesus as the object of our faith is presented here to encourage us to continue to live by faith in him. And let this be an encouragement to us to continue to keep our faith in him. One of the questions we might ask is, how do I grow in my assurance? How do I grow in my assurance? How does I grow my faith in Christ? And the answer is simple. We must look at the object of our faith. That's how we grow in our faith. And let me give you an example of what I mean. If you're not sure that your health, if you're not sure that you have believed that your house is going to handle the weather, you know, and the difficulties of the weather that come to us, right? Can my house withstand the, the storms of, of this world that come against it? Well, you wouldn't convince yourself by saying, I do believe, I do believe, right? That'd be pretty stupid. <laughs> That'd be pretty dumb to do. Rather, you would look at the house and see how trustworthy it is. You would examine it. And the same is true of our faith. There is no better way to grow in our faith than to examine the object. And we have nothing to fear in examining the object of our faith. He is faultless. So you have nothing to fear. Examine away <laughs> because we need to. So I want you to observe the greatness and the worthiness of the object of our faith through looking at what Jesus does in this passage. 
Jesus demonstrates his power through healing with merely a word. Jesus doesn't have to say mumbo-jumbo, does he, <laughs> with his healing. He just says a word, and it happens, right? The one who created the, wor the world out of just speaking into existence. Unprecedented, otherworldly power we see in Jesus. Jesus also demonstrates his power through healing instantaneously. And that's really the point of this passage, isn't it? Instantaneously, when he said he would be healed, is the very moment when he was healed. Um, and from that, he believes. Amazing. Jesus demonstrates the abundance of his free grace when he pours out superabundant grace to the man, much more than he ever asked for. Right? Here's a man who doesn't deserve anything. He has nothing to offer Jesus. A despised man, right? And what does Jesus give him? Infinitely more than he asked for. He asked for the healing of his son. But what does he end up with? The healing of his son, salvation, restored relationship with God, and his whole family coming to salvation, being restored in their relationship with God. Amazing, abundant, more than he could ever have asked or imagined. God gives him more. And this is true of everyone who is saved. He gives more than we could ever have imagined or asked for. Whatever you imagined, he is infinitely greater than that. Christ is infinitely greater than you could ever have imagined. And we might not see it in this life, but the promises of God are all true. If you really looked at the promises of God, you would see that they're beyond our comprehension. They appear too good to be true. But not one of them will fall to the ground. He will accomplish every one of them. One of my favorite verses for expressing God's superabundant grace is found in Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 7. And I wanted you to notice in verse 7, on top of all of his grace, I want you to notice what God is determined to do for you, believer. For eternity. Look, look at what God wants to do for you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Stop there and that's pretty awesome, isn't it? But then listen to this. So that, the reason he did this is so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Have you ever read that before? <laughs> that he did all these things so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what God wants to do for us. He wants to show us how great he is so that we would praise him and he would get the glory. It's a win-win situation, isn't it? You get the joy and he gets the glory and that's exactly why we exist. But know this, he is infinitely better than what you could ask or imagine. You could say that the quality of your salvation is based entirely on the worthiness of the object of your faith. Do you get that? The quality of your salvation is based entirely on the worthiness of the object of your faith. Your salvation is only as secure and good and valuable as the object is secure and good and valuable. If I am to have confidence in a house being built, I need a good architect. If I'm to be saved from debt, I need someone who's rich, right? And that's who Jesus is. He's everything. In this case, if, if this is the case, how worthy is Jesus? Is he worthy of your trust? Is he someone you can put the full weight of your eternity into? So I am simply urging you to look to Jesus. Whether you're an unbeliever, look to Jesus. If you're a believer, look to Jesus. That's the answer. Some of us, this means crying out to him to save you from the wrath of God that hangs over you. Others, this means to be more careful in our looking at the object of our faith through his word. 
so that you would faithfully cry out to him in prayer persistently as your only hope? So this is what the Christian life looks like. The Christian life looks like crying out to God, giving thanks to him for the good things, and crying out to him in our need. That's it. That's what the Christian life looks like. But it comes through seeing him through his word and all of his greatness. Beware you might look like the psalmist who is not as weird as you first thought he was. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, God, once again for speaking life to us. God, we were dead, helpless, at the bottom of the ocean. We had no interest in the things of God. We had not the slightest interest in the things of God until you made us alive. Lord, we are forever grateful for your mercy and grace and kindness to us. And Lord, we do not even know what to say in response to your kindness, that you have determined to show us for eternity the immeasurable kindness of your grace in Christ Jesus. To show us the greatness of your mercy and grace. What wealth do we have today? We are wealthy people because of Jesus. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that if anyone is outside of you, that if anyone is at this moment under the wrath of God, I pray that this moment you would bring salvation and that they would cry out to you. You said if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I pray that at this moment that you would save. And I pray that your people would be encouraged to trust you more this week. And Lord, may we be encouraged to be in your word so that we would live the way we have been called to live. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.